Hey everyone, how's it going? And you're back with Citywide Blackout, your home for music, movies, and more. I'm your host, Max Bowen. And folks, for this episode, it's my second collection of interviews from the 9th Annual Rhode Island Author Expo. This is such a great event, and I was so happy it came back in an in-person format. For this one, I'm talking with Michelle Fishpaw for her debut novel, Claire's Voice. Following that, I'm chatting with Keith Carrero for his nine-part fantasy series, which we talked about before, but there are a lot of new developments. After that, Herb Weiss is back on the show for the second Taking Charge book, a collection of columns he's written over the years for issues facing senior citizens. And to cap it off, it's J.J. Partridge, a new face on the show, to talk about the series of mystery books he's written, featuring his own character, Algie Temple. So kick back, relax, and enjoy. Hey everyone, we're back. Citywide Blackout live at the Rhode Island Author Expo. If you're not here, folks, come on down. It's a totally free event. And you get to meet some great writers like Michelle here. Michelle Fishpaw, her um, first book, um, Claire's Voice, released just a couple weeks ago, actually. So just in time for this event and for the holidays. So Michelle, tell me a bit um, about the book and just what it's all about. Sure. So this book is a true story. Um, it is 20 years in the making. Um, it's about my daughter, my oldest daughter, Claire. My youngest daughter, Grace, illustrated the cover. And basically, the story starts when I am a former teacher. I came home from school one day on the fourth day of part-time care and had to call 911. I wasn't sure what had happened uh, to my daughter. Later, after writing on the squad and the doctors diagnosed her as experiencing shaken baby syndrome. So, um, this book is a, a riveting story. It starts there. It's about our journey of creating hope um, to help others. That's why I wrote it and we're sharing it. Um, just for anybody who has encountered an unforeseen circumstance, not only how to get through it, but also uh, what to make positives uh, to turn a negative situation into a positive situation. Yes. I'm so sorry that you had to go that you had to like go through that. That's terrible. Thank you. That's beyond terrible. Thank you. It was a nightmare. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So when so what happened that made you want to like write about it and just like share it with the entire world? Yes. So it was very cathartic. Um, it was very hard because it's so close to my heart, and it had to take uh, the right editor um, and the right publisher because they let me um, keep my voice in the process. <laughs> and um, a nice surprise at the end of the book, they actually hear from Claire. So this is a novella, um, a smaller story within a larger story. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Uh, tell me about the editor for this one. So the editor is Beth Huffman. I'm originally from Ohio, and she is in Lima, Ohio. Um, this was a Christmas present, hiring this editor from my husband, who you met earlier. <laughs> That's right, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, he surprised me at Christmas time. He had hired an editor, and I said, John, I don't know if this is going to be the right person, and he said, call her, and I... Once we started talking, I just knew that she was the one. Now, I know that, that um, working with an editor can sometimes be a little tough, you know, especially with such a like personal story. 
how'd you two go with the uh, with the uh, the back and forth, and what would you say that Beth really added to the overall product? So I actually finished the first half of this book when Claire was in third grade. Um, so I was floored, first of all, when she wanted to work with me. Second of all, whenever I started writing the second half of the book to bring the book up until present day, Claire's now 22, um, I, I was worried my style of writing uh, would change, but it didn't, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> First half is like one way, second half is the other way, right? Yes, exactly. But it, she really helped me dig deeper. Um, I didn't realize how much um, I had been repressing for years. A lot of thoughts and feelings, because obviously you, when you're dealing with a difficult situation, it's hard to take your mind back to that situation. But Claire was my biggest cheerleader um, along the way. She said, Mom, it's time. You have to share this story to help other people. And then Grace, of course, designed the front cover. So I'm very proud of her. And the publisher gave us the creative freedom to do that. All right. Um, were there any parts in the story that you found like, hard to write about, especially given this was your family story now out there for the whole like world to see? Yes, because my... My husband was especially nervous because I didn't hold back. I wanted it to be real. I wanted it to be raw emotion. I didn't want to sugarcoat anything just because when you're going through something, it's not sugar, it's not edited. Um, so that was very important to me in order to um, create a difference for others, to create hope so they could connect and, and say, I'm glad someone has has written about, you know, hitting ground. I, I wasn't myself for two years. I didn't know if um, I had trouble trusting people after this happened. Um, I didn't know if I would ever return to who I used to be, um, but it, I did. That's good, that's yes. good. Um, would you say that this book could serve as a guide for folks who go through like, some of the things when it comes to dealing with, like, um, um, as, as you mentioned, doctors and law enforcement? Absolutely. The, the beautiful thing about this book is people remember our story from 20 years ago. In 2022, uh, Claire's going to be 23 years old, and uh, February 28th, 2022, it'll be 22 years ago this happened. Um, so we've had... The detective on the case contacts us, uh, former doctors who are interested. We already are speaking at two events during Prevent Child Abuse uh, that yeah. month in April in Ohio and then in Florida. What would you say this could offer for folks who just like don't have kids? So this is like not something they would ever really like deal with. Absolutely. So I feel that this book is a must-read for anyone that has encountered any tragic situation or any situation where they have had to rely, dig down deep, and rely on family, friends, and I talk, even talk about our faith in the book. Really? Yes. How did that help you out through this whole process? Um, after this happened... It, it took me to a very dark place in my life, and to get to get through 
that dark place, I just, a lot of times I didn't know with the working with Claire if, if anything was helping therapy-wise, but I just kept going and kept kept doing it. So, so just if you're ever in a situation and you're not sure that you are making a difference in the world, you are, even if it's for one person. Excellent. So how does it feel to have the book out now? It's done, it's edited, you've got the cover, here it is. This is amazing. This is our, <laughs> <laughs> this is our first author event. Really? Yes. Wow. So we are thrilled to connect with different local authors in the state of Rhode Island. Um, we've had people buying multiple copies over at our table Ooh. for different people in their lives. I've had people contact me after reading the book saying it's a binge They couldn't put it down once they started. Nice. And they're starting to contact me and share their stories, which is amazing. Do you feel like it can serve as a sort of like empowerment for folks who may have gone through like similar situations but don't want to talk about it? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So what is what is next for you? That is a good question, <laughs> That is a very good question. So I'm a, a former teacher. I own my own practice in Newport. I'm a licensed massage therapist, so I love helping people on all different levels. And like I said, Claire and I and John, who you met earlier, were strong advocates for uh, preventing child abuse, but speaking at any event, whether it's a library, a school, um, any events at all, we're willing to travel nationwide. All right. Uh, so where do folks go to learn uh, more about you and check out the work? Sure. They can go to michellefishpaw.com. That's my website. Uh, if they would like to purchase a personalized copy, they can on my website, but it's also available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Apple Books. All right. This is Angelina Singer, author of the Upper World series, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout, the best podcast for independent artists. Joining me now, he's been kind of a regular on the show, actually, for the past few years. Author Keith Carrero joins me, talking about his Repentance series, a three-trilogy series, folks. So that's a nine-book series. An enology. Enology. I knew there was a word for it. That's good to know these things. The enology. Um, so, and last time we talked, you were uh, you had recently published, I believe, the third book of the first part. Correct. So the first trilogy is published. Yep. Uh, it's published by Stillwater River Publications. Yep. Stephen uh, Don Porter. Uh, they're here, as a matter of fact. And uh, I'm working on my second trilogy called The uh, Pilgrim. Mm -hmm. First one's called The Penitent. Second one's The Pilgrim. The third will be The Prophet. Uh, and I'm, I'm uh, almost 38,000 words in the fourth book. That's a good start. Yeah. I, li I, li I like that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So give us a quick rundown as to what the penitent portion of your genealogy is. So the penitent portion, Max, sets the stage for the story. So the platform uh, starts off with a host of characters, uh, Paul Warren, spelled P-A-L-L, -L, is one of the main characters. He's a protagonist. Uh, the other one is John Savage, also a protagonist. Uh, and they basically, when they first meet, they're at odds with one another. And you're, you're looking at a medieval society. You're looking at uh, the Middle Ages, or so you think. 
and uh, not that because they're in the in the story in the setting, they don't think of it as the Middle Ages, but it has all the accoutrements of of uh, Ooh, the big words for the day of, here. We're busting out all the big words of, of the Middle Ages. So uh, that's the sense of reality. However, despite hints given, they're not in the Middle Ages. They're in a hyper-reality experiment that's taking place in the 26th century. Wow. Yeah. It's a heck of a story. Well, that's the, that's the, that's sort of like the overview. Yep. And the understanding, my, it's a thought experiment I, I'm attempting to do in my senescence, in my senility here. And uh, uh, so I, I want to know what's going to happen to humanity 500 years from now, given that we've, I think we've ramped up into a totally different era compared to where, where we were even three years ago. Um, and so will democracy exist or will power being power, evil being evil, Will it have its full sway in, in, in uh, the running of governments, the running of people? What will their relationships to science and thought and religion and faith be? Uh, those are the sort of the big questions. But I try to break it down so into characters that are, that are going through that sort of zeitgeist, the spirit of the times, uh, in which they're, they're going through these challenges. Um, so the, the, the society of the 26th century has reached a certain point where they understand dark matter, they understand dark energy, they can employ it for their means, they can do terraforming on planets, and there are 12 power bases that are in this part of the solar system, not this part of the galaxy, uh, uh, which is uh, uh, basically they're at war with one another right, because they can, they can look, they, they, they got it made. They can live for however long they want. But they're greedy. You know, give the billionaire a billion dollars, they'll want another billion. Exactly. Three would be better. That'd be nice. And once they get that, they want another ten billion. Yep. In other words, they don't, once they attain the power, they don't want to let it go. Right? Kind of like a monkey being caught with its hand in a jar after the sweet. They're not going to let that. They're not going to let that sweet go. Yep. So where this hubris is leading them is they want to become like gods. So how do we become like gods? Well, genetic research, genetic alteration. So they've got these 12 power bases and they're all using different scenarios, different experiments to attain that. The main story that I'm using, these folks have created a hyper-reality experiment and they're trying to put people into war-torn situations. Demons are being thrown at them. All kinds of nuts are being thrown at them because there's a, a, a thought, a hypothesis, that if a human being can successfully navigate it, they are using their DNA differently than you or I are. So that may lead to a genetic algorithm into immortality. Now, how long do you have to spend, like, building this world? Because this is a very complicated story you've got here. Well, I started writing in 2014. And uh, I started writing around May 24th, 26th. And I wrote every day for six days, except for six days. Uh, and I stopped on about October 9th, and I had a, about 180,000 words. And so that became, that manuscript became uh, these three books. 
There's two of them. Well, yeah, here's the third one. <laughs> so, Visual aids, folks. Yeah, there we go. Show and tell. There you go. I'll show mine, you show yours. Um, this ain't that kind of show. Yeah, oh, okay. Well, in, in the sense of thought, in the sense of experiment, in the sense of adventure. Uh, and I wanted to be able to meld these voices together. Lee Child. Yes. J.R. Tolkien. Yep. Dean Koontz. C.S. Lewis. And uh, the gentleman, uh, Lou Wallace, who wrote... Uh, 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 wow. He wrote a, a, a Sandals. Oh, come on. Ben-Hur. And uh, I wanted to be able to put those together in a 21st century context and see if I can add my own spirit to it and see what would happen. So that that was in the, that was my hopes of getting this started. So these three books set the stage for what happens in the next trilogy, which I'm writing now. The next trilogy takes place on Ouroboros, which is uh, an actual exoplanet that I renamed. And it's, uh, it's a migration from the Earth that comes from Great Britain, England. Uh, and they're the ones that created this hyper-reality experiment. And so that's, that's been a blast trying to get through that. <laughs> All right. So, as you mentioned, you are now in the second part of the book, uh, the second part of the Enneology, which is the Pilgrim portion. Right. I'm in the middle of it. You're in the, in the middle of that. Boy, am I in the middle of it. Exactly, <laughs> right. Well, that, that's how it is being, being right. You just dive right into this thing. Yeah. You live in this world that, that uh, you create. But where does this part of the series take us? This part here? I uh, know, uh, the new one you're working on. That's going to take you... Okay, so are you familiar with a Matryoshka Russian doll? Nope. you got a doll within a doll within a doll. Oh, okay, yep, yep. So you've got... This is the internal doll. The next series is the middle doll, and the third series is the ultimate doll. Okay. So you've got a... You think... Like I said, they think they're in the Middle Ages, but they're not. They're yep. in the 26th century. So in the... In the in the middle trilogy, they think they're in the 26th century, and they think that their exploration and their settlement of these 12 power bases is fairly a gone conclusion. They've had a war with machines that are that rival enhanced humanity, so they think that's that's their reality, but it's not. So the third trilogy brings in transdimensional beings. Ooh, very cool. Now, given how long this is, given how complicated it is, do you have to plot this whole thing out, or can you just wing it? Both. Really? Yeah, so I'm not a plotter, I'm, and uh, I, I'm not a, a free floater, I'm a pantser. You're kind of in, in like, the, in like yeah. the middle of those yeah, two things? Yeah, pantser, yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Does it ever get you into any, like, corners where you think, okay, I've got to now drop the last four chapters because... I wrote myself into a wall. Uh, I'm trying to prevent that. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I, as a matter of fact about 20,000 words into the fourth book, I reached a point where I, had, I was juggling these balls in yep. the air, and I, I, I got stuck. I said, oh, what am I going to do? So I, I try to practice something called lucid dreaming. And uh, so I went to bed that night, and I said, think, 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 dream, dream, dream. And I dreamt that I was back 9,000 years ago in a very primitive society. There were no rules. I was in this tribe, and boy, was it nasty. It was amazing. It was awesome. 
And I, I woke up and I said, oh, I think I know what I need to do. Yeah. And what it, what it was was I needed to transform the symbol I had of a serpent eating its tail into a portal into another dimension. Yeah, do you do this a lot? Do you find that it kind of helps you when it comes does to happen a lot. writing ideas? Yeah, I must admit. Nice. I'm guilty. <laughs> How else do you kind of get the ideas to flow? Like, do you have a certain like writing ritual you do? Well, if I if I'm not teaching, what I like to do is I like to get up to what I need to do in the morning and start writing around nine o'clock and go to maybe one or two. But my goal is to write 500 words, and that's easy enough. Oftentimes, I go to 1,000, 2,000 words. Yep. That's what I generally do. I must also say that it's not just dreams a lot of prayer goes into this yeah because this basically is a christian themed uh basis because i did mention c.s lewis and tolkien yeah 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 so does the religion play like a like really like large role in the overall story that's a great question uh when i first saw ben-hur i was a boy i was a child and charlton heston that whole thing just blew me away because it wasn't necessarily the story of Christ, but it was the story of Christ. It was a story that took place when Christ was on the earth. And the power that that had on me, I don't know, had a real mystical hold on me. And I wanted to, that stuck with me forever. forever. I want, and, and in my dotage here, in my 70s, I'm hoping that I can cast the same kind of spell, if it were to be able to have the same kind of uh, sentiment, same kind of taste. Tolkien talks about mythopoeia, where uh, he, was, he, was, he was fascinated with the tales of the prophets in the Old Testament sure. and what happened to them, the burning bush, the Red Sea being held back so the Israelites could escape Pharaoh. I kind of like the same thing. Uh, so, yeah. That's what I'm trying to do. All right, all right. So, do you have a release date set, or, or, or even like a hope that you get some out by? Um, I'm hoping I can get the first book done in May, the manuscript. Then I got to, you know, you got to edit it, you got to go all through it, and then after that, I'm going to start on the fifth book because I already know what the fifth book's going to be. So, did you um, um, really like envision this originally being a nine-book series, or did it kind of? happen as you were going through the writing process it started pretty quickly yeah because I said okay so I'm, I'm gonna stop working at some point what am I gonna do what am I gonna do I gotta have something that I really love to keep me going because I saw a lot of people when they retired they kind of went into you know a decline yeah they don't really like do anything right I didn't want that to happen so I said Let's see if I can create a Herculean task of uh, cleaning out the gods' stables where the horses, you know, <laughs> constantly creating stuff where you've got to clean out that stable. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I like that. I like that. All right, Keith. Well, once again, great talking to you. Great to catch up on the series. So, folks, if you don't know, now you know. Pendant series. You go to um, uh, immortalitywars.com. Herb Weiss, we actually had him on the show a couple of years ago. Uh, probably about three.
three or four years ago. Yeah, yeah, a while back. And, and I'm so honored to be here, um, to be watched by your vast listening audience, or to even be, it's radio, right? Or it's radio, yeah, it's also radio. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. I'm glad to be here on your radio show. There you go. And uh, so when we spoke last, we were uh, we were talking about your book, which is a collection of your like senior living associated columns. And you've got a new book out. This one's called uh, Taking Charge, More Stories of Aging Boldly. Yes. Tell us a bit about the new book and what people can and cannot find. Here. Okay. So um, I write a weekly uh, commentary for two daily newspapers yep. and a statewide blog. And what I have done is I've pulled the best of uh, these articles over the last six years, put them into a book, um, and published it. Um, I think it's uh, it, your readers will find it real interesting because they're short and concise articles, easy to read, um, topics like caregiving. Um, I even have a, a chapter on COVID um, because that, <laughs> it really impacted the senior population. Yeah, definitely. Um, I take a look at research studies on helping you age gracefully, helping you have an improved um, later years and I sort of localize it towards this area. Um, All right. Um, so how do you decide on like, on like what topics to tackle with each of your columns? Uh, they sort of uh, come, after writing for 40 years, you sort of get a feel yeah. for what is needed. I, I really, one of the things I do is I really cover Washington, D.C., Capitol Hill. There are a lot of things that are happening in regards to Social Security and Medicare. Um, and actually, there is an interesting resolution that was introduced by Congressman David Cicilline, mm -hmm. and it is to bring back the House Aging Committee. It was a, a committee that totally focused on aging issues in the 80s and 90s, and it got eliminated in 93. Cicilline is trying to bring that committee back because he feels that as our population grows older, you need um, a, you need a committee in the House to actually put the spotlight on the issues that need to be addressed for seniors. Um, that is one article I've done. A lot of articles are on caregivers, um, the importance of um, taking care of yourself. Yeah. Because when you are a caregiver, you're going to burn out. Yep. And you're no good to anybody in the person, your loved one you're taking uh, care of if you don't give yourself some time. There, there are articles that give you little practical tips. I interview experts in my column along with people who actually um, are going through the issues of aging and taking care of a person or dealing with issues themselves. Okay. Now I'm curious um, as to what you got as to what got you writing this column in the other first place. Like what happened that said that made you say, "I want to write all about senior issues." Well, I started. Um, if, if they saw me, uh, they would see I look probably in my 60s, late 60s. But I've been writing for 40 years. Um, I actually got into writing about senior issues because of a master's I got from yep. North Texas State University. Um, in nursing home administration, basically that was the area. And what happened was a high school friend went to the Navy, he, he got discharged, came back to Texas and asked me to apply to this program. I, I guess he needed some psychological support. 
So you know how life is. They, 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 they throw you opportunities. I never knew anything about aging, uh, and, and I made the decision to go in that program because of a friend saying, why don't you do it? And I've been riding for 40 years. That was the pivotal experience to get me into a field where I've, at this point, written over 800 freelance articles, Jeez. two books, and that doesn't even include the articles I wrote editing seven newsletters in publications. Wow, that's, uh, that's quite a resume. I like that. Well, yeah, I, I could always do more. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know. 800, 800 columns. Oh, what's that? That's nothing, right? Well, <laughs> I mean, and, and sometimes um, things are, you, you never know what you are going to write about, um, but you fall into it and issues come to you. I, sure. I watched the Rhode Island General Assembly to see what's happening. Of course, I watched I um, watch Washington, D.C. I do book reviews of articles that people may find of interest that might give me, and they're all giving them uh, tips and um, ways to cope with growing old. Um, my generation, the baby boomer generation, um, basically, were, we, we, we thought of ourselves as the Pepsi generation, like yeah. we would never get old. But um, we are. Um, I grew up um, with in the Vietnam War, and all the people that I knew in the Vietnam War were 18, and people were going to Vietnam at 18, 19, and 20. And now, um, you look at all these people, they're in their late 60s and 70s, yep. you, you know? So um, it is it's sort of interesting. And, and also, I'll tell your best listening audience, so in, 19, in, in 1955, the last Civil War um, soldier died. Yeah. So you actually had, in the mid-50s, the passing of a generation. Okay? Then I believe you had uh, the last... I, I think you're close to... You're probably the last World War One soldier died. Yeah, definitely. And now, World War Two, which we see in Private Ryan and all these different uh, war movies... Uh, they're going to be all gone in 10 or 15 years, and anybody who is living with a father um, or, or a parent who went through World War II should do an oral history uh, before they hang up their spurs, so to speak. But um, it's coming closer to the Vietnam War generation, yeah, you, yeah. you know, so um, it, it, it is sort of interesting, and, and when you talk about generations, the baby, baby boomers had to be caregivers for their parents. Now it's moving towards millennials yeah. having to uh, take care of their parents. Exactly. Baby boomers sort of did the sandwich generation, raising kids and dealing with parents. And the millennials and the younger generations are moving up to have to deal with these type of issues. Now, we talked earlier about... Um uh, caregivers need to kind of be watchful that they're kind of like burning out. What would you say are some of uh, the red flags that are kind of hitting that point? Well, you know what? Sometimes caregivers actually have to uh, take money out of their pockets to um, pay for the care and, and support the person that they're taking care of. So it would impact their um, retirement. 
they may have to take a leave of absence or quit their job yeah. to um, take care of somebody which will reduce their income and their um, um, retirement um, eggness. They also may get physically burnt out, um, you know, um, hypertension, you know, a lot of the chronic diseases, sure. they, uh, you would get hit with a lot of those um, areas. Um, and uh, what would you say are some of the, the more, like, more uh, prevalent issues that seniors are facing right now? Well, all I would have to say is I hope the younger generation gets Social Security. Yep. And, and, and um, at this point, um, I would have to say that the Democrats have basically been looking to expand Social Security and strengthen the program, while the Republicans would like to do um, sort of... Um, private sector, you know, um, uh, get out of the Social Security, yeah. but give everybody a, five, a, a 401k plan and you invest your own money. I would have to say that one of the things that I worry about is if um, the Democrats lose the House and the Senate, yeah. you're going to see more activities in legislation that will uh, cut Social Security benefits um, and cut Medicare as cost savings um, measures. Um, you might want to, quite candidly, um, one way to um, raise um, monies for Social Security is um, it, it's um, a cap, the taxes are capped at a certain income level. Sure, yeah. And, um, even if you make $500,000 a year, it's capped. You should raise the cap on income. Yeah, there are certain yeah. common sense things that you could sort of do. Even if you um, raise, um, some people may be opposed to raising the um, full retirement age by a year or two, but I mean, in the long run, that may help. So I worry about Social Security. I worry yeah, about definitely. Medicare. Um, I worry about the cost of prescription drugs. Yep. And the Democrats have been trying to push legislation to be able to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies to lower drug costs, prescription drug costs, and out-of-pocket costs of seniors. And they can't seem to get it through um, the Senate with uh, with uh, a 50-50. Uh, um, the, I mean, 50 Republicans and 50 uh, Democrats. Yeah, you know? I gotcha. I mean, these, these are uh, basic um, issues uh, yeah. that um, people have to sort of worry about. Um, you, you also want to see more money into uh, Alzheimer's research, you know, with the Alzheimer's. A lot of people have Alzheimer's out there and yeah. um, be more cost effective to be able to find a treatment for it uh, than have to in, have people end up in a nursing home that would cost $60,000 a year or whatever. Um, there needs to be more um, funding um, for community-based care where people can age in place in, in, and stay in their homes. Yes. And there needs to be more money for transportation mm -hmm. to get people out of their homes mm -hmm. to doctor's appointments and to places like that. There needs to be more money uh, for programs like Meals on Wheels. 
be able to give people um, a, a nutritious meal, yeah. um, meals every day. I mean, I mean those are uh, things. It's a lot of, uh, uh, basically, there's just like a lot to be concerned about right now. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, Herb, appreciate you uh, joining me. Well, Great talking to you again. It. And uh, folks, definitely pick up a copy of his new book, Taking Charge. Uh, more stories on Agent Boldly. His first book, of course, is also available. And where do folks go to learn like more okay. about you? Check your work. Okay, they, uh, people could go to my website, and it's and it's very easy. It's herbweiss.com. Yeah. H e r b w e i s s dot com. It gives um, summaries of both my books. It gives uh, chapters. Um, in, in articles in each book, it gives um, quotes from people basically saying, oh man, that's a good book, buy it. <laughs> um, and, and, I think, and actually, it even has uh, my blog. I write, um, I, with the articles I write every week, I put it in a blog. Yep. And people can get those articles for free. And just know, every six years, I take those articles and write a book. Yep. So you'll have to buy my book. Exactly. Picture this. You finished your first book and nailed it. The plot, the characters, all the twists and turns. This one's a winner, and all you need is the right cover. If you've got my art skills, this is the part where panic usually sets in. Enter the cover villain, hero to writers everywhere. Founded by noted author Remy Flagg, cover villain focuses on composite image covers for science fiction and fantasy writers. Give them the details and they'll craft a cover using popular trends that everyone will want to see. But wait, you say, I've got ideas of my own. No problem, as Cover Villain loves a good collaboration. As they say, our goal is to put a little villain in every cover we make. Want to know more? Then head to CoverVillain.com and follow them on Facebook and Instagram. It's kind of funny because you never know who you're going like, to run into here, the folks that you're going to meet. Join, join me now, uh, meeting for the for the first time, actually, is author J.J. Partridge. He's got a big stack of books here. And uh, J.J., welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. But why don't you walk us through your books and what they're all about? Okay, I'll be happy to do that. Uh, I write under J.J. Partridge. That's my pen name. My real name is Jack Partridge. Many people know me as an attorney. But I write under J.J. Partridge to make sure that there's no... Uh, inference with regard to any of the characters that I write about. Now, I have four published books. The first three are part of a series called the Algae Temple series. Algae Temple is the name of a private detective in Providence, Rhode Island, who also is the general counsel of a Ivy League school in Providence, Rhode Island, not to be identified except as Carter University. That's, that, obviously, that there's an Ivy League school in Providence, but mine is called Carter University. So he's a, he's an amateur sleuth. He doesn't mean to get involved in things, but things happen because he's the general counsel of the university. So he gets involved in all kinds of things. Also, he is an old line Yankee from the east side of Providence. So there's a whole set of circumstances in his life that sometimes arrive at crime or, 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 or mischance that involve um, you know, the death of a person. My books are generally called cozies, which means that the death occurs in the first 10 pages of the book, and then there's about 290 pages more to find out who did it, because I'm throwing out red herrings all throughout the book. And because it's Providence, there is a mayor of Providence 
who I call uh, Sonny Russo. Sonny Russo may remind you of a former mayor of Providence in some respects, but he's also uh, uh, involved in lots of other things that have to do with the university. He doesn't like the university, so he throws up all kinds of issues that Algie Temple as a lawyer has to face in addition to the, the murder mystery that's going on. He also has a girlfriend in the first two, eventually gets married, in the first two, whose her name is Nadi, Nadi Winokur, and she is a, uh, a very useful character, not only because she's a screening progressive, and Algie is kind of a conservative, middle-of-the-road kind of guy, so it's a good combination of, of, uh, of conflict that, that occurs within the book, makes him more of a, more of a person. Then in my last book, which is called Under Blood Moons, it's a story of, uh, of a horrendous murder that takes place in my adopted town of Greenwick, Rhode Island, South County town, and a underage boy who's 16 is convicted, he's tried as an adult, he's convicted, and he's, he's terribly disfigured in the, in the course of the event that, that caused the death. And he is, uh, he's in prison for 26 years, and he finally applies for parole, and the story is about the hero, a guy from Pawtucket, who is on the parole board, and he tries to make sure that this guy gets a fair shake. Uh, and his name is—he's a good, good French, French boy, French Canadian boy from Pawtucket. Uh, and uh, his name is Fournier. Everybody in Pawtucket was called Fournier, but in the French Canadian world, he's Fournier. Uh, and uh, anyways, he's also an Iraqi veteran. He's got a lost an arm in a rock, so he's a hero. So he's a hero, and the other person in jail is sort of an anti-hero, and they don't really meet until the closing chapters of the book talk about what happens to the blows at the end of the book. And the publisher wants to know how you, if, for people that like like the book, whether or not I can turn this, should turn this into a, a series as well, involving the parole board. And by the way, I have to make a point that my parole board is not the parole board that is uh, that does a, a great job in Rhode Island. My parole board is a mixture of all kinds of people, some of whom are not well intended, some are very well intended. So it's, it creates a conflict that you have to have in a very mystery. So those are my books. Uh, Excellent. All right. So so there is a, uh, definitely a lot to dive into here. So as you mentioned before, you are an attorney as well. How does that? How does that like life and work experience kind of like factor into your books? The one giving you like a, um, a lot of a lot of ideas for characters and stories. All of the above. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm informed by all the people that I know and meet. I get. I've done a lot of work for universities, so I understand academic politics and what happens for in academic political situations, which is very helpful. I had no experience with the parole board except that the chairman of the parole board was Dr. Ken Walker, a wonderful man, graduate of PC. I knew him because he was a basketball referee as well. And I told him I had an idea for a story that I had been given by a, a friend of mine in Washington, D.C. And he said, well, come on in, you, you know, we'll treat you great. And he did. They invited me into hearings so I could understand how a hearing goes, what's the back and forth that, you know, between the people on the parole board who have very, very viewpoints about parole. And they believe me, they do it. It's not, not just walk in and say, I want out. You've got to go through a process. And that process can be very, very uh, difficult for the people who may have you know, not done as well as they should have in prison. 
So it's a very, it's a very interesting uh, uh, time for me to go through that with the people in the world, but for whom I have a lot of respect. Okay. Um, now, do you have to like work hard to like not name names when you write these books, not like give people away that you might have? Well, the only with? one that I really had a hard, a hard time with was a mirror providence. Yeah. I named him, not knowing that there wasn't such a person, Sonny Russo. It's Mayor Russo, not Mayor somebody else that you might you might be thinking about. He, um, but the, there was a Sonny Russo, and he actually had a restaurant across the street from the convention center, the civic center, I should say, and. Um, Later moved out of town, but I did not know him, and I didn't know that that was his that was his name. But it was a very successful restaurant right across from from the Civic Center. Okay. Um, so what happened that made you want to get into writing? Like you know you know you know going from like the legal world to the uh, writing world. Well, I always wanted to be a writer, and I, I wrote in college. And obviously, as a lawyer, I've done a lot of writing. And I just thought I had some ideas that I could get into paper sooner or later. And, and the characters sort of form themselves. Now when I write, the characters kind of speak to me. For instance, if I do some dialogue, and, I, and I, I'm dyslexic, so I have to do everything verbally first. So that um, if I do dialogue, they'll tell me whether or not that dialogue works. And I can hear, I can hear their voices telling me, that's not a very good point. Or don't do it that way. Go go at it another way. It's very very helpful. But I've always, you know, as a lawyer, I used to write a lot of briefs. Uh, I'm, I'm used to writing long essay type pieces, so it was it was very easy to fall into it once I had a narrative in mind. And my characters actually drive drive the, the novels. I mean, they really do. For which I'm very grateful because it saves me a lot of time. If I come to a place where I'm having what they call a writer's block. I just take some time off. One of those, one of those characters will speak to me, and I can move off that block onto the finish the book. And when you're doing books like these, I mean, they're, they're um, you know, straight pool is 300 pages, scratch is uh, 320 pages. The new one, Under Blood Moons, is actually 347 pages. So there's a lot of work. There's a lot of words in all of this. You know? Anywhere between 100,000 words and 125,000 words for a novel. That's really good, yeah. You kind of think of it, kind of think of it that way. And you might be interested, why is there, why is there pool, pool balls on, on the cover? Well, in the Algae Temple series, he is an amateur uh, pool player. He's serious, he's serious though. He goes and plays in tournaments and belongs to a pool club on, on Wickedon Street in Providence. And one of the things I like about these books, like, Elsie Temple is a Providence guy, so you can write about all about Providence, things that happen in Providence, locations like Roger Williams Park, figure quite well, uh, Federal Hill, because of the mob, the mob aspects of it, figures quite, quite prominently in, in the books. So, so that's that's kind of I like the locales. I mean, if I I can describe the locale, I think pretty well. I mean, if you read this book, you would know about a lot about Federal Hill that isn't otherwise reported. Uh, if you um, you, you would know something about South Providence. You certainly would know a lot about the East Side of Providence and how it actually what's the social fabric and how it actually works. And the same is true with Fox Point. Okay. A lot of Fox Point in here. All right, all right. Well, JJ, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it, and uh, definitely your books sound really, really cool. But where do folks go to learn uh, more about you and to check out your work? Well, they can go online and, and look at my my uh, website. It's jjpartridge.com. You, you can't miss it. Uh, you can go. To, you can buy the books online, of course. But 
I prefer you to go to a, a bookstore like like Books on the Square. That's right. Or um, in Pawtucket, Stillwater Books, because they've been very supportive of me as a, as a uh, as a writer, and I want to be supportive of them. It's, it's very easy to go on Amazon, obviously. And I'm not saying don't do that or put it on your Kindle. You, you can do that, and I applaud you and thank you for doing it. But doing it with in a bookstore when you get a chance to talk to somebody who knows about the book or the author is very very helpful for everybody.